that stuff hopefully eventually gets pulled into the standards process and moves into the platform. And that's where the complexity lives. It becomes easier for you, the developer, becomes better for the end user because it's already built right in. There's been talk of interactive components like tabs and carousels and accordions having native elements so that you don't have to like roll your own or grab like a library every time you want to add these very common user patterns. And so that for me is, I think, the trend that I'm most excited about, but I think it's also the longest way out. I'm excited, but I'm also like, okay, you need to be really patient because this is not going to happen anywhere near overnight. Big thanks to our partners, Linode Fastly and LaunchDarkly. We love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Get $100 in credit at linode.com slash changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com and get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at launchdarkly.com. What's up, party people? This episode is brought to you by Auth0. Auth0 is a for developers by developers identity platform built for the cloud era. They secure billions of logins every year. Identity is the front door of every user interaction and the login experience can make or break a user's first impression. Identity and authentication is never a set it and forget it thing. That means when teams decide to roll their own, they are taking on the full burden of constantly evolving industry standards, customer expectations, and data breach tactics. And they often don't have the time, expertise, or resources to meet those needs. This takes away from critical time needed to innovate and to improve their core product. Auth0 has solved this problem for every developer to give teams their time back and to make applications more secure. With Auth0 security, compliance, and industry standards, they're always up to date. Developers are free to provide the login options their users want with the security their application demands. Make login Auth0's problem not yours. Learn more at Auth0.com. Again, Auth0.com. This is JS Party, your weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Next week is our 200th episode, and you can be a part of the show. Stay tuned to the outro for all the details on how you can make this episode extra special and get yourself a free JS Party t-shirt in the process. All right, we've got a great show for you today. Hey, it's party time, y'all. party people and welcome to this week's JS party. I'm K-Ball. I will be your host today and I am joined by the one, the only Chris Ferdinandi, the vanilla JavaScript guy as I think he was introduced the last time we had him on the show. Chris, welcome back. Thanks, uh, Kevin. I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you too. So the last time we were here, we talked a lot about how JavaScript is the CO2 of the web. It's something that just kind of seems to be accumulating over and mm -hmm. over time. We get more and more around. I think you've been beating this drum for a long time. Yeah. Do you want to give folks who maybe don't know you or, or weren't around for that episode, and I'll find the, the link to that episode, drop it in the show notes, but maybe give them a little intro of, of you and kind of who you are in this community, because I think you have a bit of a, a stance here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I honestly, I feel a little bit like old man yells at cloud a lot at this point. And my position has become a little bit more nuanced as the hair in my beard has gotten a bit more gray. I'm a self-taught developer and I learned how to code at a time when it was like really this like this perfect storm of 
really good browser APIs coming online, the platform itself borrowing a lot from stuff that jQuery had like paved the cow path for years earlier. And also a web that didn't do like a ton of stuff yet. It was way less complicated than it is today. And so one of the things I've like really strongly started to feel is that if I were trying to self-teach myself today, I don't know that I would be able to do it or that I would really have the, like the fortitude to stick with it. And so I really believe that there's a simpler, more resilient way to make things for the web. And I spend a lot of my time not just teaching people JavaScript, but focusing on a a way to build for the web that's a bit more a bit more accessible, a bit more friendly to the people who actually use our stuff that maybe centers the user over the developer and in the process of doing so actually makes things easier for developers too. And uh, a web that's just more resilient and performant. I feel like um, the things we build today break really easily don't really run meaningfully faster than the web did five or 10 years ago, even though internet speeds have gotten like four or five times faster globally. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack here. We can go in a bunch of different directions. Yes, I was feeling that break really easily earlier. I just was working on a big project to migrate our build system from Webpack over to Vite. Mm -hmm. And there's all these like subtle things that are slightly different. And I thought I had it all, got it together, and then like deployed a test and it was broken. And it's like, oh, didn't find this package right. Or it worked in dev, didn't work in prod. Yep. I actually just ran into this myself yesterday. I had a pull request on an old plugin of mine from like five or six years ago, um, like a form validation thing. Um, and it was a really simple request, really just some basic functionality. It was like a one-line change. Yeah, no problem. Happy to accept it. They only made the change to the source. So I had to like run a build and update the version number and everything. And I, it was built with Gulp, which I haven't touched in like three or four years because I'm all in on NPM scripts now. And so everything was broken. Like the build wouldn't run. NPM install was failing because of like a bunch of broken dependencies. I think I was on like an old version of Gulp that long outdated. And um, I ended up just bailing on the PR with the idea that I'm going to have to literally like rebuild my build process before I can accept this PR. And that is just such a like, that's just such a crappy feeling. One of the things I love about, I think, the more close to the metal approach is you can pick up code bases you built years ago and you don't have to deal with that. For me, it's one of the biggest Achilles heels about the way we build today. Now, to be fair, this is not a purely JavaScript problem. No. Right? I remember trying to pick up old Rails projects or, <laughs> you know, yep. heaven forbid, compiling something that actually depends on headers that have changed mm -hmm. and things like that. Like, this is a problem in some ways, that is as old as software development. Yeah, that's fair. But JavaScript skipped it for a while. Yeah, and not just JavaScript. I feel like it's maybe the whole front-end tooling chain now. Everything requires a build step now, and there are really like, good reasons to do that. But the build steps do so much, and they, in particular, have such deeply nested dependency trees you ever seen the the meme of like there's a bunch of like really precariously stacked blocks and there's just yes. one little keystone block holding the whole thing up and it's like some guy who's been maintaining this project in his mom's basement for like a dozen years like that's the web and it's so easy for that project you know it's like the the like what pad left or left pad whatever that like yep. the whole npm yep. thing is all you need is one person to stop maintaining some critical infrastructure and a bunch of stuff falls apart and that just really sucks 
That does. And that dependency tree, as you highlight, is so big. Like I remember the whole like empty create React app project that installs a thousand packages. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they've changed that or not. It's been a long time since I've, I've played with that. But yeah, it's it's deep. So, okay, this is a problem. This has been a problem for the web for a while. But you also, when you reached out, you said, hey, I think I see some mm-hmm. some directions we're going that might be improving that. Do you want to talk a little bit about those? Yeah. And so to be fair, it's almost like there's two different directions you could go. And they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. They kind of work in tandem. And this will make a lot more sense when I actually start talking about it. So let me just shut up and do that. So I originally had flagged two trends, but I'm actually seeing a third. So the first trend is the rise of micro libraries. So for a long time, we've had these big UI rendering libraries like originally Angular. I think there was some before that, but I'm old and my memory's crap now. Um, (laughs) And React and Vue, and they're pretty big. Like even minified and gzipped, they're 30 um, kilobytes. And once you unpack all that code, it ends up being a lot, a lot larger. And because of how JavaScript runs in the browser, there's not just the download time to consider, but the actual like compiling of all that stuff and then the abstractions that are layered in make working with these libraries really slow for browsers that use them. I have a a relatively modern smartphone and um, the Stop and Shop mobile app is, I believe it might be an Angular app, maybe it's React. I haven't actually looked at the source code, but I can absolutely tell that is a JavaScript-based front end for like ordering online groceries and stuff. And it works fine on my computer. It completely cripples my phone. It crashes constantly just because of all the code. I just can't handle it. One of the big trends I've seen is the rise of micro libraries. As far as I can tell, this trend started with Preact, but there have been others that have followed suit. And so what these libraries are is they're effectively really small libraries that do a lot of the same things as the bigger libraries, but with less code and less abstraction. They sit a little bit closer to the metal. So for example, Preact is a three kilobyte alternative to React that uses the same API, but it's like a tenth of the size. And it has a few less features, but not many. So it has hooks like modern React does and all of the state-based UI goodness that people love about React. It's not just smaller to download, like you don't just benefit from that smaller footprint there. It's actually four times faster to render state updates than React is too. So the initial render is faster, state updates are faster. And then Jason Miller, the guy who built Preact, claims he's working on a render engine update that results in optimizations that are actually up to three times faster than Preact's current render. And potentially even faster than the way people would normally handwrite vanilla JavaScript, just because of some, you know, there's just some weird stuff that's built to be optimized for the way computers handle code that isn't the way like someone who wants sane and maintainable code would actually author it. And uh, like, that's really, really cool. There was also Alpine JS, which is still around and was inspired by Vue.js, but never really got as big as Preact. But it did inspire Evan Yu, who built view to create petite view, which is a five and a half kilobyte subset of view specifically optimized for progressive enhancement. And a more recent entry to the market is SolidJS, which is another reactive state-based UI micro library that claims to be nearly as fast as vanilla JavaScript and render performance, but has a similar API to libraries like React and Preact. And so I'm really hopeful for these. They don't completely eliminate this problem, but they have 
less code, fewer dependencies, fewer breaking points, and generally punish the user less for the developer making a decision that is really largely for their benefit, for developer ergonomics or developer experience. So it sounds like a common trend on these is kind of trying to hit that Pareto principle of saying, okay, let's give you 80% of the functionality at 10% of mm-hmm. the code weight. Yeah. Because you know, React is built for Facebook's needs. If you're shipping all of Facebook, you don't care about a little extra weight in your framework because you need all of those additional mm-hmm. features and functionality. But if you're shipping something small, you may not. Yeah, this was a huge part of our conversation last time. React isn't inherently bad. It solves a very legitimate problem that the developers at Facebook have. But for 99% of us, we are not building things that are anywhere near Facebook's size, scale, needs. And so we're using a tool that was built to solve a specific problem that doesn't necessarily match up with ours. State-based UI, problem. State-based UI at that level of scale and with all these other kind of moving parts and needs, not usually not so much. The Pareto principle is a really good way to to kind of frame that. So I find that exciting. I'm just, I'm really glad to see people kind of taking this concept and saying, what can we, what can we strip out of here and still maintain kind of the, the kernel of what made this so good? But there's another trend that I actually think is even more exciting. And that's the rise of like pre-compilers. So a few years ago, Rich Harris, who works over at New York Times, realized that while state-based reactivity can be a good thing, Handling it all with a mountain of client-side JavaScript is not. And I will send you a, a video, his kind of initial talk on this that we can link to in the show notes if you want. But he ended up creating a tool called Svelte, which we talked about a little bit last time. And the way Svelte works is it gives you a similar-ish authoring experience to something you might get with like Vue or React, lets you create reactive state-based components. But instead of shipping them as is to the browser, and then letting the browser kind of run all that stuff in real time, it runs a compiler that spits out plain old HTML, some vanilla JavaScript, and that's about it. The vanilla JS does the same kinds of manual DOM manipulations that you would do if you weren't using a framework. So rather than doing DOM diffing live in the browser, the compiler figures out what needs to change when different things happen. All right, let's spit out just a little bit of JavaScript to do just those things. And oh, this HTML never changes. Let's just spit that out, like hard-coded into the HTML file already so it doesn't have to get rendered with JavaScript. And in my opinion, this kind of thing gives you the best of both worlds. You can write state-based UI if that's your thing, but you get to serve an old-school DOM manipulation experience to the users that's actually, in many cases, faster and more performant for them. Rich also started working on this thing called SvelteKit, which is an extension to Svelte that adds routing and some really, really smart progressive enhancements so that if the JavaScript fails, you can fall back to some server-side stuff. He did a talk on this last week, week before, at the time of our recording, on a new term he coined, transitional apps, that kind of bridge this gap between single-page apps and multi-page apps. And I'll share a link to that with you as well, Kevin, just because I think it's really, really interesting. Yeah, so... I want to dig a lot deeper on this pre-compilation trend because I mm-hmm. I am also super excited about it. And I think there's a lot of different pieces that play into that. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I want to ask about before we go too deep on it is, so this solves some of the challenges in terms of what we're shipping to the, the client, what we're shipping to the customer. But does it just move those problems? Do we still end up with the 1,000 dependencies because now we need to do more complex things on the compilation side? Absolutely. 
I have a lot of excitement tempered with deep resigned sigh, I guess. <laughs> the thing I've come to like just really, I've gotten to a very Zen place about accepting this is that my needs and wants as a developer seem to be very different from at least a, a vocal subset of the larger developer community. I have run into a lot of developers who legitimately enjoy the experience of working with these frameworks and don't find kind of the maintenance costs of dealing with them particularly difficult. I don't agree. I absolutely hate it. But I know enough people that like it that it's not just kind of this like, oh, okay, you're just like an outlier or odd. And I thought about this a little bit more acutely. Just last week, Tim McNamara over on Twitter shared kind of this, this idea that like it's harder to build websites in 2021 than it was in 1996. And he was kind of lamenting being able to open up Notepad, write some HTML, and push it up via FTP. Bit of a chore, but you know, predictable and easy to understand. I started giving it some thought, and I realized that, first of all, you don't have to build with these tools if you don't want to. In fact, just last week, I actually changed a file and pushed it up to my site with FTP, and it was glorious. Oh, my God. And like, it had some downsides, but it was also like glorious in a really weird kind of way. Also, like many things are easier than they used to be. Kevin, I think you're like me, probably old enough to remember when we used to have to use tables and spacer gifs to like nudge and move stuff around, right? And now we have we have Flexbox, we have Grid. Now you only have to do that in email, right? <laughs> yeah. which will never apparently catch up to the modern era. But like between Flexbox and Grid, we can build these amazing layouts with relative ease. Browser standards literally just weren't a thing. Yeah. <laughs> Back in the day. And now like you can write code once and ship it to all the browsers without a bunch of like if else statements. Flexbox rocked my world right? when that came out. <laughs> like just completely rocked my world. So like in many ways, web development is easier unless you let it not be. Like you don't always have a choice with the tools you use. And some people jump on the tool train just because it's like the thing to do. But the other piece of this is that the web also is more complicated. Like I, I have a tendency to kind of over nostalgize the early web, but like the reality is like there was a time where you couldn't even share images on the web. Yeah. The things you can do have dramatically expanded. Right. You couldn't style links on hover. Like they were just the color they were and that was it. Well, and I think this is actually kind of the key to some of this is this idea of complicated complexity, the types of things that you can do. I have this theory that in general, complexity is conserved, right? So if you have a complex problem, there's going to need to be complexity somewhere in your solution. Yes. And this actually, I think, lies at the heart of some of the distinctions between who is really excited about these tools and who isn't. If you're solving a lot of really complex front-end problems, it's really nice to have a lot of that complexity baked into your framework. And as someone who built some very complex jQuery and Backbone apps back in the day, like... I love these frameworks for building complex apps. They are mm -hmm. so much nicer than what we had to do previously when that complexity was baked into your application and not handled by the framework. However, the frameworks do have this kind of minimum complexity bar. They bake in a lot of complexity. And so if you're set on using that framework, you can only go so low in terms of how complex mm -hmm. the work that you're doing is. And if the work that you're doing doesn't need all that complexity, you've now baked in unnecessary set of things. So I mentioned at the start that there was kind of this third trend that I've just recently started like thinking about that I didn't mention when I originally reached out to you. And I think this 
for me, is the thing I'm most excited about. Compilers are really cool, and we can dig a lot more into them if you want. But I think the thing that kind of gets at both of these, and we've seen this trend every like five to 10 years or so on the web, is eventually you build up enough, almost like a steam valve releasing, you build up enough momentum or pressure around the tooling that the best parts of it get absorbed into the web platform itself. Um, yeah. And we saw that with ES5, where jQuery for like years was the way you built things with JavaScript on the web because it made stuff that used to be really hard, like selecting an element by something other than an ID or adding and removing classes really easy. And then we got Query Selector and Query Selector All and the class list API. Using embedded video on a web page used to require, you know, really complex JavaScript libraries. Now we have the video element. There's just all this really cool stuff that's like getting pulled into the platform. And I'm seeing more and more of that starting to happen. Um, I don't think we're anywhere near where we need to be. But a lot of these tools that I hate have a really important role of paving the cow paths and showing what we could do. And then that stuff hopefully eventually gets pulled into the standards process and moves into the platform. And that's where the complexity lives. And it becomes easier for you, the developer, becomes better for the end user because it's already like built right in. I'm even seeing this now. There's been talk of interactive components like tabs and carousels and accordions having native elements so that you don't have to like roll your own or grab like a library every time you want to add these very common user patterns into your interfaces. And so that for me is, I think, the trend that I'm most excited about, but I think it's also the longest way out. And so I'm excited, but I'm also like, okay, you need to be really patient because this is not going to happen anywhere near overnight. Yeah. There's a JS Party episode that we did with Lori Voss, oh, who yeah. talked about exactly this idea of like mm -hmm. of libraries transcending into the platform. And jQuery, I think, is the best example of this. It was something that made such a massive improvement in the way that we work on the web that the web just said, okay, we're going to suck that in and give you those capabilities natively. What's up, party people? Are you ready for Core Web Vitals? Well, our friends at Raygun can help. These modern performance metrics play an important role in determining the health of your website. That's exactly why Raygun has made them into their real-time user monitoring tools. Now you can see how your Core Web Vitals scores are trending across your entire website in real time and drill into individual pages to focus your efforts on the biggest performance gains. Unlike traditional tools, Raygun surfaces real user data, not synthetic, giving greater insights and control. Filter your score by time frame, browser, device, geolocation, whatever matters most to you and your team. And what makes Raygun truly unique is the level of detail they provide so you can take action quickly. Identify and resolve front-end performance issues with full waterfall breakdowns, user session data, instance level, diagnostics of every page request, and a whole lot more. Learn more at raygun.com today and take control of your core web vitals. Plans start at eight bucks a month. Again, raygun.com for your free 14-day trial. Okay, so let's come back and 
dive a little bit deeper. And I'm particularly excited to dive into the pre-compilation trend because I think there's a lot of interesting things going on there. And it kind of hooks into some other trends we're seeing because the more you pre-compile, the more you can push things out closer to the user. You can do very edge-located computation. There's all sorts of interesting pieces there. Mm -hmm. Looking at this landscape, in some ways, the sort of pre-compilation mania started with tools like Gatsby, yeah, which still ends up shipping a heck of a lot of code to the browser. Yeah, there's a way to turn that off. But yeah, by default, it's a lot. Yeah, so I feel like Gatsby kind of had a, a rise where it was very, very popular, and then it sort of had a fall, and, and a lot of folks are a little bit down on Gatsby at this point. But one of the things that I think it kind of highlighted that was really interesting, and I'd love to sort of put out there and then kind of see if this is something you're seeing elsewhere in the ecosystem, is that it highlighted that pre-compilation not only can mean what you do on the JavaScript side generating HTML, but it can also mean doing all sorts of different data and API pieces at compile time. Yeah. If you have something that lives in an API, but you know that it's bounded and you can enumerate the cases, sometimes it makes sense to do all those API calls up front so the user doesn't have to deal with that time. Yeah, I do that in a bunch of my my own work, actually. I don't use Svelte or anything like that. My workflow is a lot more HTML-driven. So like, I, I always talk about the JavaScript-driven tools just because audience and all that. But I'm really, really, really into static site generators like Hugo and Eleventy. And um, they do the same thing. They have built-in like fetch and render kind of capabilities that are really, really interesting. And I absolutely love Personally, that's one of the more kind of powerful aspects of this, especially when you couple it with some sort of cron-based tasks where you pre-compile at like set intervals and then redeploy, depending on how kind of how time sensitive your your update needs are, um, like how fresh you want the data to be and you know how much traffic you get. You can reduce the load on your server. You can reduce the demands on the, the user's end. Um, it ends up being a really, really nice, a nice way to build for the web. So essentially, what you can do in that case then is you're, you're basically doing all the things that a dynamic web server would do, but you're doing it asynchronously ahead of time or on a mm -hmm. cron schedule. And then what you end up pushing out and serving from your web server is just static HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. Yeah, let me give you an example, just because I think, for me anyways, I find examples make things a little bit more tangible. So I run like a dozen different websites because I'm a glutton for punishment. So like I have I have my main website at gomakethings.com. I have vanilla JS guides where I sell my pocket guides, vanilla JS toolkit where I have a whole bunch of like copy paste stuff and like a handful of other kind of like help people with JavaScript kind of sites. Whenever I launch a new course or product, I, I want to let people know, but I don't want to go update a dozen sites every time I do that. And then if I'm running sales, like kind of time sensitive, like today's your last data, I don't want to have to go update all that manually. And so for a while, what I ended up doing was I created a really simple like JSON API. It's literally just a JSON file that has the sales messaging and that's it. Like you can call the API, get the data. And for a long time, I was doing this with JavaScript, like it would inject into the page after the page loaded. But now I use Hugo, but this works with any kind of compiler tool that has API fetching capabilities or HTTP built in. Every time my sites compile, they call that API 
get that content and then use it to hard code HTML into the file that gets rendered. And that's what gets shipped. So when you request that file, that content is already baked right into the HTML. And I have my server set up to rebuild all of these things at um, midnight every night. So every day, like if the message has changed, the fresh message displays. But you can do this with all sorts of things. Like I did as an experiment, I used Eleventy and like a fake photography website API where it literally just had like a, a giant array of like photographs, their cost and a brief description. And with Eleventy, you can grab grab this API, generate different routes for each of them. So you can like completely eliminate single page apps if you want with a tool like this. And I think I'd use like a GitHub action hook to recompile it. The whole thing was just hosted on GitHub pages for free. And so, you know, it would spit out fresh pages for each of the different photos that were available and hard code all the information right in. And as a result, you hit any of the endpoints for those pages and they load instantly. And then when you pair them with something like a CDN or service workers or both, the latency time and the user experience is on par with something like a single page app without the accessibility issues that come along with that and without the, the fragility that comes along with that. And so I think it's a really nice alternative to some of the, the tools we've been using up to this point. Yeah, you, ha- you compare it to a single page app, that's with a fast API on the single page app, right? If you have a pretty slow API <laughs> you're working with, right. like a lot of single page apps, the experience is click, loading bar, loading bar loading bar, loading bar. Here's my page, right? And that's yeah. a little bit better than a click. Nothing, 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 <laughs> nothing. Here's my page. But it's far inferior to click. Oh, there's my page. Mm-hmm. Now, I think one of the limitations where we haven't talked about, but it's maybe implied here is this approach works totally fine for API-driven content that is generic across all users. But once you start getting into like customized content for individual users, it doesn't really work anymore unless you want to pre-compile like different views for every single user and all of their stuff. And I don't think that's necessarily um, reasonable or sustainable in most cases. So there is kind of that, that limitation there. But it does work really nice for architectures that are driven on like microservices or like decoupled kind of situations where you've got data living in a bunch of different places all connected with APIs. Yeah. So that raises kind of an interesting point of what are the kind of domains in which this works well and where does it start to break down? So, you know, individualized content, logged in experiences, things like that. That's definitely mm-hmm. a place where where there can start to be breakdowns. Yep. Though you could have those parts be dynamic API based and still yeah. statically compile most of it. Are there other places this starts to break down? Like some of the things I'm thinking about is where you kind of end up with search experiences across very large numbers of pages, where you end up Mm -hmm. with just content that counts in the millions of pages rather than the thousands of pages, things like that. Yeah. It's tough for me to say to, hold on, I just, I want to run a quick little, quick little test here. So if I, if I were to try and build, how many pages are on? on my site right now. I'm running a Hugo build just to see how long it how long it takes. Yeah, so I do think on larger sites, you maybe start to run into the kind of the edges here. The potential flip side is, you know, depending on what you're doing on the server, the um, 
kind of the server demands can be really high if you have kind of on-demand generated stuff too. And if you're like, okay, I'm just going to ship flat files, but then have JavaScript do its thing. You're effectively forcing every user to run their own little private server to handle all that stuff for you in the browser. And that's not necessarily very kind either. I hadn't really thought about the like the very large site thing. I think for me, I'd, I'd always been thinking about it in terms of content needs. So, you know, pre-compiling works really well for stuff that doesn't change very frequently or is kind of really consistent from one user to the next. I think that the time sensitivity aspect is a thing here too. Like if you have, um, like let's say it's not specific to the user. I'm thinking like a ticketing site, right? Where you're buying tickets to a concert. You want, depending on like who the artist is and like how tough these tickets are going to be to get, you probably want like up to the second information about ticket availability. And like, you know, a delay of a minute is not necessarily acceptable if these tickets are going fast. And so, you know, those are the kinds of things where like, same information for all users, but like the time sensitivity is so high that pre-compiling that just doesn't make sense. Yeah, I actually think you probably have a better list for that than I do, Kevin. I don't know. I hadn't given that piece of it a ton of thought. So another dimension that we might look at here is mm -hmm. the tooling around these and how that's evolved and sort of the infrastructure mm -hmm. pieces to to ship this mm -hmm. some of the benefits that you get out of going this approach are you know we mentioned massive performance improvements because you're you can just serve static html cdns can serve it all of these different things another big one is in my mind is actually security mm. i <laughs> at some point my sites that I maintain outside of work are all static sites, static generated. I have one that's built with Svelte and one that's built using Jekyll. I'm not using SvelteKit. I'm actually curious. I, I did that site before SvelteKit came out and I was using some previous thing. But um, the nice thing about those is like I can invite people to try to hack them. <laughs> there ain't nothing they're going to get to there, right? It's just static files. There's no vulnerabilities there. Or if there are, it's vulnerabilities in Nginx dealing with static files, right? <laughs> Yeah, for sure. The tooling is wide and varied. And a lot of it depends on your, I guess, really preferred stack. I tend to use Hugo for all of my things because I found the Ruby templating in Jekyll confusing. Not that Go is particularly clear either, but it renders really fast. And I found that I really like old school static site generators because they're mostly HTML with a little sprinkling of whatever your templating language of choice is. So Eleventy is another really good choice. The one thing that has kept me from migrating to Eleventy, honestly, is I do not want to deal with maintaining Node.js on my server. And again, we're shipping flat files, but I have a process that involves like deploy to GitHub, send a webhook, pull the code, run a build on the server. And I just don't want to deal with like the whole Node on the server thing. It's a pain in the butt enough to do it on my own machine. Never mind, something I have to SSH into. But there are tools for any kind of workflow. So if you enjoy working with, with React, I know we mentioned Gatsby's kind of fallen out of favor a little bit, but you can use React in Gatsby for templating, and that's totally fine. These days, you also have like Next.js. If you like Vue, Vue has kind of a, like a, they have a bit of a static site compilation thing. And then I think the one I'm probably most excited for just because I think it'll reach the most people is a new kid on the block Astro, which is heavily inspired by Svelte and works 
in many of the same ways, but lets you pull in components from all of your favorite JavaScript libraries. So if you have a drop-down menu component you like from React and a card component from Vue and a Svelte project you started working on, you can mash them all together and it's going to run and spit out plain HTML and some vanilla JavaScript and it's going to shed all the libraries for you. Oh, that's interesting. So I haven't seen Astro before. I'm looking at it now as you, you mentioned it. But um, so there's a lot of talk in like the micro front end world about, oh, you know, let this team build with this framework and that team build with that framework. And mm -hmm. often what you end up with is, you know, we talked about how painful it is shipping those 30 kilobyte runtimes or whatever. <laughs> well, try shipping three of them or five of them or what have <laughs> you, right? Yep. If I'm understanding you correctly, Astro essentially precompiles all of that away, gets rid of the runtime just yep. bakes down to what is the minimum possible needed to run this app. Yep. So I'm going to totally butcher his last name, and I'm so sorry. Jason Langsdorf from Netlify. He's over on the developer experience team. He tweeted like a week or two ago that he ported a Next.js site into Astro. It used 90% of the same component code. He obviously had to make some nudges and tweaks to um, to accommodate the, the build tool a little bit. But... He ended up reducing the amount of client-side JavaScript that got shipped by 90%, and the page load time went down by 30%. So just really, really huge wins all around. And this is with almost entirely the same code. So using Next, but no, no client-side runtime on that. It's um, just HTML and platform native. Wow. So what are the limitations? Like, where does it break? <laughs> That's a great question. So it's still too new, I think, for me to really know, or most people to really know that yet. Like it's on version, the preview version right now is 0.21. So it hasn't even hit like a 1.0 release yet. It's still very much in, in beta. But it's gotten a lot of attention because of all the different things that it's able to do. And it seems to have a really nice developer experience. Enough of it, at least, that the folks over at Netlify are paying attention to it. It's got really nicely laid out docs, which is always helpful because so many tools don't. And I feel like that's the tools that really take off are the ones that, that have good documentation. The thing with a tool like this, and this is where I think a lot of these really fall down, is you know there's still the whole NPM install, NPM init kind of thing here. And then like the updating and, and maintaining, and it's really hard to get away from that. But I think it solves so many other problems that... I'm really excited to see how this project evolves. I think it's still maybe too early to say where this falls apart and like where its real potential is. I think it has a lot. I don't know. It looks like Astro, while it's not built all in JavaScript, it actually compiles down to Wasm and you can run it in the browser. So maybe you don't even need to deal with all of that. You just pipe your code into a browser-based version of the compiler and go. Oh my God, that's wild. This looks really interesting. I'm excited to dig into it. So Astro, we'll include a, a link to this in the show notes, but it's just at astro.build. Very, very interesting. There's a lot of innovation happening right now. I feel like it's, to your point, like the whole complexity thing. I feel like it's just kicking the complexity can in a different direction in some ways, but potentially the right direction, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, you know. let's take one more break. And then let's come back and look at, kind of play forward the next couple years where we see this going.
Anka Harl Zoo, host of Ship It, a show with weekly episodes about getting your best ideas into the world and seeing what happens. We talk about code, ops, infrastructure, and the people that make it happen, like charity majors from Honeycomb. We act like great engineers make great teams, and it's exactly the opposite, in fact. It is great teams that make great engineers. And they Farley, one of the founders of Continuous Delivery. Start off assuming that we're wrong rather than assuming that we're right. Test our ideas, try and falsify our ideas. Those are better ways of doing work, and it doesn't really matter what work it is that you're doing. That stuff just works better. We even experiment on our own open source podcasting platform so that you can see how we implement specific tools and services within changelog.com, what works and what fails. It's like there's a brand new hammer and we grab hold of it and everyone gathers around. We put our hand out and we <laughs> we strike it right on our thumb. And then everybody knows that hammer really hurts when you strike it on your thumb. I'm glad those guys did it. I've learned something instead. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting perspective, but I, I don't see that way. OK, it's an amazing analogy, but I'm not sure that applies here. Listen to an episode that seems interesting or helpful. And if you like it, subscribe today. We'd love to have you with us. Okay, so let's get back into this. We've talked about what the situation is, kind of where we've come, talked about this exciting new trend in pre-compilation and reducing the amount of JavaScript and especially runtimes that we're shipping to the browser. Let's play forward a few years. Where do you see this going? Where are we gonna end up? Is all of this gonna get baked into the browser? Like that takes a problem we have now where browsers are super complex and monopolized because nobody can afford to build them and, and makes it potentially <laughs> worse. So where is this going? I don't know. My hope is, I don't think we'll ever fully pull this stuff into the browser. And if we do, there will always be, in my, my opinion, there will always be limitations or things that like the browser gives you a really good baseline experience. But if you want to do it with a little more oomph, you're going to want tools. Like a really good example there is if you're an expert in CSS animations, you can hard code those like to do all sorts of crazy things. But it's really complicated to get some of those more nuanced animations. And a lot of people reach for CSS libraries to handle that sort of thing if they need it, because it's difficult. The tools are there, and then you just kind of build on top of them a little bit. But I would love to see some sort of browser-based solutions for things like DOM diffing or like tools that would make state-based UI a little bit easier to handle. There's an API in the works that's still in, I think it might still be in spec around sanitizing HTML strings before injecting them. Like right now, either libraries like React or Vue will handle that for you, or you need to install something like DOM Purify into a project to do it for you. And it helps protect your client-side code from cross-site scripting attacks and working with third-party I think having that as a baked-in API rather than something that needs to be re-rolled in every library will actually make the web more secure and slash a bunch of weight out of these client-side libraries. I think compilers are here to stay. I feel, generally speaking, like the stuff that is pre-deploy always has a longer life cycle than stuff that runs in the browser. It seems like the in-browser code seems to trend and turn over a lot more quickly. 
whereas kind of the behind the scenes stuff seems to get a little bit more deeply entrenched. Well, yeah. Have you ever tried to configure your own webpack? I'm just going to take what they <laughs> built for me, right? Like I, right? I just spent so much time changing out my build system. I mean, I know people who still use Grunt, you know, and like when's the last time you've heard Grunt mentioned in a conversation, but it's just once you get on a workflow, the migration cost is is pretty big. But I'm really excited to see where where compilers and static site generators go next because I think they marry the best parts of the old web, the lean performant, like early 2000s web with modern stuff. I feel like there's a really, it's a spectrum. So, you know, it's not, you can do everything with this one tool, but I think they provide some of the nicest benefits without imparting those costs on the user. And they allow you to automate in the right places. And yeah, I'm, so I'm really excited about compilers. But I'm also, I think, looking even further out, I am really hopeful, but a little skeptical that we're going to see more and more interactivity become a native part of the web platform itself. And I think for me, perhaps the shiniest model of what this could look like is the details and summary elements. They are hands down my favorite HTML elements. I love them with a passion. I don't use them often, but they are, I think, the perfect example of what this could look like. So just for anybody who's listening who doesn't like know what they are or how they work, you create a details element in your HTML. Inside it, you nest a summary element and then any other stuff you want. The summary element becomes text that's displayed on page with an arrow next to it. And when you click it, all the other stuff gets revealed. It's hidden by default, and then it shows. And if you click the summary element again, it collapses and all that stuff gets hidden. And you can set it to be open by default by adding the open attribute to it. And what I love about this element is that if the browser doesn't support it, it's automatically progressively enhanced. The user still gets all the content. They get a baseline experience. It's completely stylable with CSS. So you want to make that summary bold. You want to add padding or margins. You can do that. You want to change the way that arrow icon looks, replace it with something different, like a spinning yo-yo or a party popper or whatever, you can do that. And it even exposes a JavaScript event you can hook into to add additional customization. So I've built some accordion-like things using it where I have a group of them. And if one of them gets opened, it finds all the others in that group and collapses them. It just handles so much out of the box for you. I see it as a really great model for other interactive components. And so my, my really big hope is that when I come back on JS Party in 10 years and we're having this conversation, <laughs> we'll be talking about some completely different problems and we'll have all these amazing native elements for all this interactive stuff we struggle with today. Yeah, absolutely. So we talked a little bit about what some of the tooling and platform progressions are. What about in terms of like where people are serving code from? Like I think... We've mentioned Netlify a few times in here, mm -hmm. and they're, they're doing some really interesting things about making it easy to take these things and push them out towards the edge. Yeah. And Cloudflare is also pushing in that direction. And I think that's yeah. going to force AWS and some other folks to innovate in this direction. So there's this kind of meta trend of serving infrastructure, or I don't know if meta trend, mm -hmm. but there's this, this other related trend of serving infrastructure that also is facilitating these changes. Yeah. What's your vision into to what's happening there? Yeah. So I am, I love this trend, honestly. All of these kind of processes really kind of start from this core of, imagine if deploying a site was as easy as pushing to a Git repository. And Git isn't always the easiest thing to use. It can be a little bit easier when you layer a GUI onto it. 
I'm finally at a place where I feel comfortable doing it with command line. But for years, I used a GUI, and that's fine too. It strips away some of the friction of working with FTP, but gives you a similarly easy experience where you write some code, you push it up, and then the platform just handles the rest for you. It will run the builds, run any tests that you have, automatically deploy it, push it to a CDN. And then where I feel like Netlify and now Cloudflare with Cloudflare Pages are really, really winning is when they pair it with a serverless functionality. So there's always certain things that you just, as capable as some of these tools are at running like asynchronous stuff or calling APIs, there are certain things for which you need like live real-time API calls. And that has historically always meant, even if I use these tools, I still need to set up a server somewhere and do something with it, even if it's a cloud-hosted one. And for those of you who don't know, serverless is, there's still a server involved. It's just not yours. It's not yours, but beyond, I mean, you could say that about cloud hosting too. And I think where it really, the key distinction is not only is it not yours, but you don't have to think about the server at all. You don't have to think about what bandwidth do I need? How large does it need to be? What's my input output? Any of that. It just scales up or down as needed and charges you only for what you use. And that's really cool. So the way they typically work is you write a file and you upload it to your serverless provider and they figure out what to do with it. They give you an endpoint to call when you want to run it and you're off to the races. Yep. Oh man. Uh, <laughs> so there's a great metaphor that I've heard around servers, which is like when you have a small number of servers, you treat them like pets, right? You know their name, you know mm -hmm. what each one of them is and their nuances, and their differences. <laughs> and then at some point as you scale up, it starts to be more of a farm, right? Mm -hmm. You don't know what that cow's name is or that pig's name is. But you've got a herd that they're managed in some broad way. Serverless is like, I'm going to the supermarket and I'm getting bacon, right? Like, mm -hmm. I don't even care that there was an animal in the process <laughs> down the way. I just, I've got my bacon. That's a really good analogy, though. Yeah. What I love is um, most vendors allow you to author in a few different languages. A lot of them even let you, like, mix and match across files, which is cool. So Netlify um, has a handful of languages, including just JavaScript. Cloudflare, I love because they run on web workers. And so their original kind of offering was just plain old vanilla JavaScript. You were writing a service worker effectively that lived out on the edge. It lets you do really cool things like serve a static site and then write like a little micro API that does just that last little bit of interactive functionality you need without having to deal with servers at all. And where both Netlify and Cloudflare, I think completely eat Amazon for lunch is in the user interface and just the general working with it experience. It is such a clean, easy process. And AWS is just miles behind in terms of how to navigate around their UI. Not that Netlify or Cloudflare are absolutely perfect in that regard, but they are so much better from a, like a UI UX perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is really one of the very interesting directions that we're going. And I think the key unsolved problem for me is how we push data further and further out and what mm -hmm. what data can we push further and further out? Because, you know, as you highlight with the tickets, right, there needs to be a source of truth for the tickets. And I need to know <laughs> yeah. how many tickets are left right now, not five minutes ago, but right now. And that's hard to push out to the edge. Mm-hmm. Cloudflare has gotten weirdly good at reducing the latency to like milliseconds around. They have a serverless database offering called the Cloudflare KV. 
I just don't understand how they've gotten the latency down like so low. They do kind of stress that data data put in and, and out of those is always going to be a little bit off just like initially as they like true up because, you know, all this stuff kind of lives out on the edge and then eventually like resyncs itself. But yeah, I feel like even like cold starts just so much faster now with a lot of these serverless platforms. I have no idea how they do this with this technology because I'm not a backend guy. Oh, there was a super interesting, it was in a recent episode. What, what was it? I will go find it. But at least one of these providers would essentially compile all that is needed of V8 mm-hmm. and the JavaScript application you built down to WebAssembly, essentially snapshot it because then they could do all of the slow parts of booting up the virtual machine and all of those pieces mm-hmm. at compile time. Then they get a WebAssembly snapshot and they're off to the races. Um, let me find that real quick. But it was, yeah, just fascinating how many things we can do to just speed that up. Now, I will admit, this falls into the area of, I am so grateful that I don't have to think about that <laughs> kind, of, kind of stuff for me. I appreciate these tools because it makes standing up and deploying websites a lot, a lot easier. Maybe not as easy as LiveJournal or, you know, GeoCities back in the day. But for a modern build process, it's about as close to perfect as, as you can get at the moment. And I really, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to see more and more of this kind of thing. Yeah, I found it. It was uh, Fastly. And ah, basically, they, they take down the speed of starting up a JavaScript thing. From If you're starting up a, a V8 isolate, it's like minimum six milliseconds. And if they pre-compile it, they can get it going in 300 microseconds. Wow. Just incredible. Yeah, that's pretty wild. And that's for live code. That's not pre-compiled. That's just like, I mean, it is pre-compiled to, to WASM, but it's like, this mm. is running in a serverless process. It's not just statically served HTML. Unbelievable. The world we're going towards <laughs> right now is just <laughs> wild. And for all that we hate on the complexity of the tooling, having it, mm. it's more and more baked into the tooling so that you as a developer, you don't have to think about it. Yeah. Just pick your tools and you're off to the races and your stuff is being served from all over the world in microseconds. This is where we talk, or this is where, for me, kind of that distinction between like, it's not, it's not really fair to like break it down this way, but like good complexity versus bad complexity. This to me is like the best type of complexity where it's relatively painless for me as a developer and also makes it really easy for me to provide a very great experience for my end user. I feel like a lot of the other offerings either put a lot of the complexity on the developer or on the end user. So one person is always paying for it. And this seems to make it better for both people or both parties. And that's really awesome. Awesome. Well, I think at this point, we're looking at a pretty good show. Chris, anything else you want to bring up or highlight before we go? No, no, I think we, we covered a lot of ground. So I, uh, I certainly wouldn't want to bore people with <laughs> with any more of that. I will, I guess, just say, if you enjoy these kind of heady conversations or you just want to tell me that I'm wrong, you can find me over at gomakethings.com. You're used to people telling you that you're wrong. Right? I get that a lot, yeah. You put your flag out, right? which I appreciate, right? It's hard to take a, a controversial <laughs> stance and you have not shied away from that. So I appreciate that. No, no worries at all. All right. Well, thank you, Chris, for joining. Thank you to all of you listeners following along. This is K-Ball signing out. Our 200th episode is next week, and I'm putting together a special highlight reel for it. 
I would love to include some of your favorite moments, guests, and topics from the past 100 shows. We have two ways for you to do it, text or audio. Every listener who gets their voice or text message included in the episode gets a free JS Party t-shirt. And the details for submissions are at jsparty.fm slash 200. Please do get in on it and help make our 200th episode truly special. Once again, that's jsparty.fm slash 200. And we'll have the episode ready for you next week. Thank you.